Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please also visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague and friend, Holden Brooks, to kick off today's episode on ways that economists add value to provider clients who are considering transactions. Take it away, Holden. Thanks very much, Judy. I'm Holden Brooks, and I'm a partner uh, at Foley and Lardner. I practice almost exclusively in the area of healthcare antitrust, and I'm coming to you today from Milwaukee, which is Foley's historic headquarters. You know, healthcare has always been a, a super exciting area of, of antitrust law, uh, particularly in the last decade or so. But some of the most interesting matters and, and the ones that can really have a significant impact on our clients' business and the community that they're operating in are transactions that involve providers. This would be hospitals, physician groups, other kinds of service providers and facilities. And although these kinds of transactions have been on the radar of antitrust enforcers at the state and federal levels for several years, this is really not a trend that is showing any signs of slowing down. And in fact, there are clear signs that there may be some pent-up deal activity that's going to ramp up in 2021 after a bit of a slowdown um, due to COVID. And so that potential surge in these deals means that my guests today will likely be in very high demand. So thank you for joining me, uh, Monica Nother and Sean May of Charles River Associates in Boston. We're very lucky to have you considering the tremendous work in the provider transaction space that you've done over the years as economic experts in what really are some of the most interesting deals uh, in healthcare. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting us. One thing I just wanted to mention is that even before we get to a point where we would uh, help a client decide if they wanted to continue with using internal resources for looking at a transaction or potentially retaining an economic consultant, there are frankly a lot of best practices that we want to see put in place that we think are really where you can get a big return on investment with respect to antitrust advice, uh, making sure that the transaction proceeds smoothly, that you don't uh, incur any undue risk related to gun jumping or uh, improper exchange of information between competitors, et cetera. But for now, I'm going to kind of jump forward to the point in the deal process where we're helping the client decide whether there's an opportunity to add an economist team uh, to the broader deal team and why we might uh, make that recommendation. So Sean and Monica, that is usually the point in the deal process where you hear from me and plenty of other antitrust lawyers like me who are counseling provider clients. I really want to turn to, you know, what happens after that first phone call. Just give us a thumbnail sketch of the kind of information that you tend to need to see to understand those deals in terms of data or documents or interviews, and also the kind of analyses that you're, you're able to generate. Let me start with um, hospital mergers, since I think 
they are a type of transaction uh, that has drawn a, a lot of scrutiny from both uh, federal and state enforcers, and I think are, are becoming increasingly common as uh, competitive and financial pressures to be reimbursed on the basis of, of quality and, and not just the amount of services provided as all those pressures uh, mount on hospitals. Hospital mergers are, are a type of transaction where uh, thankfully it's fairly easy uh, and straightforward to get a quick look at the likely competitive concerns that the agencies or a state AG might have. Uh, most states uh, or sometimes state hospital associations compile and publish data, uh, inpatient discharge data, uh, that can be used to quickly uh, do things like calculate market shares which will give a, a sense of the competitors that your clients might compete against for patients or compete with managed care companies to be included in managed care networks. I will caution that, that sometimes the word market has a special meaning in antitrust economics, as, as well you know. And sometimes the way that antitrust agencies like the FTC think about markets and competitors might be a little different than the business people. So I think uh, economists can be helpful in navigating how the FTC uh, or state agencies, uh, the economists and the lawyers uh, might think about who's a competitor uh, and what their competitive significance is. I just want to underscore that point that this is one way that I think economists supplement a client's understanding of its own business with respect to how the antitrust agencies are going to look at it. It is a very, very common phenomenon that we have extremely talented business development executives at a provider client who have a business perspective of their market that's very developed. But once you, once you are looking at it through this lens that we know the Federal Trade Commission, for instance, would, would use to look at a transaction, it can look very different. So again, I just want to underscore that that's what I see as, as a big advantage that clients have when they bring in an economist who can model that FTC analysis. I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, so, so sometimes you might hear from your economists that your shares are higher or lower in the antitrust sense uh, than they might be in what you see in your business planning documents. And then I, I think based on that the FTC and Department of Justice publish uh, horizontal merger guidelines uh, that lay out uh, what market shares and something about market concentration uh, which is a sort of a measure of both, you know, how many competitors there are on a market, what their size is, and how the deal might, might change the number of competitors in the market. So the horizontal merger guidelines give you a sense based on the, the shares of how the agencies might as a, a first pass uh, view the transaction. There's also a, a fairly long history of, of litigated hospital mergers. And I think, you know, there's information in, in the public domain about what market shares look like in those deals. Uh, that can give you some sense of whether or not your deal is, is likely to fall sort of in a, a green light zone, a, a yellow light zone, or a red light zone. If you hire experienced uh, antitrust attorneys like yourself, or people who've been doing uh, healthcare antitrust economics for a long time, they also have a sense of what deals weren't challenged. So we can all look at the FTC's website and see what the shares or concentration were in litigated hospital mergers. Beyond the classic hospital merger, what other kinds of deals are you are you asked to look at? I think a, a, a common uh, type of deal uh, are physician group transactions. So that could either be one physician practice uh, acquiring another physician practice. 
think increasingly common, commonly you're seeing physicians being employed uh, by uh, healthcare systems. That gives rise to a, a different type of deal that we call vertical deals. So in the, the antitrust nomenclature, uh, a horizontal deal is when two competitors come together. Uh, so a hospital system is acquiring another hospital system or a physician practice is acquiring another physician practice. Vertical deals are where our firms at sort of different levels of production combine. So a health system acquires a physician practice, a health plan acquires a PBM, a health system might acquire an outpatient uh, ambulatory surgery center. Those types of deals give rise to sort of different concerns and different but related concerns. And I think those are, are becoming increasingly common. And I just want to note that when we're thinking about current events, I think there has been uh, some chatter in the healthcare press that COVID has actually accelerated some of those types of vertical deals as physician practices have, in some circumstances, found it more difficult to remain community-based and have sought to be absorbed by systems. Is that a, a trend that you're aware of as well? That is is definitely true. I would say it you know extends even beyond physician practices that you've got a bunch of small players. So you've got you know smaller hospitals that just don't have the financial cushion to absorb all of the additional costs they've had to incur with COVID, as well as the reduction in the kind of profitable revenue that you get from, for example, elective surgery. So I think there has been you know it's been pent up so far, but I think there is going to be a wave of both horizontal and vertical transactions stemming from the financial implications of COVID alone. So one thing that we've confronted in our work together and been talking about lately as well is there is a more difficult process in the data gathering for looking at a physician deal than a hospital deal, whether it's a, a horizontal physician practice transaction or, or a system acquiring a practice. Do you want to talk about the information that you uh, need to be able to look at those physician group practice transactions? So as you mentioned, hospital mergers tend to be fairly straightforward in terms of, of data requirements. There are commonly available data sets that, that you can use to quickly turn around analyses. Physicians are a little trickier. There are uh, data sources available from CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, that will tell you information about where physicians are located, what their primary office address is, what their specialty is. Um, but it's just a head count. It, it doesn't give you a sense uh, of how many patients a physician might be seeing or the, the types of patients that uh, that physician might be treating. Usually health systems will have uh, some sense of, you know, they'll certainly know who has admitting privileges at their hospitals. Um, so that might give you uh, a good peek into the local market conditions. Um, but a lot of it is is just legwork. I mean, your your clients are going to, to have deep uh, knowledge about the local market conditions. They are uh, can be very helpful in, in identifying large physician practices. And then uh, we also pretty commonly uh, scrape the internet. So we'll go to uh, uh, a competing physician practices website and, and just use some software tools to download the, the roster of physicians and their office locations and their specialties. So you, you sort of uh, blend all these ingredients together, data from CMS, data from your clients, uh, public sources. Uh, the American Medical Association has some had data on, on physician locations. So you can sort of combine all those things together, I think, to get a good sense 
of uh, what the market conditions are and whether or not uh, the deal is likely to, to raise some eyebrows at either state AG or the FTC. So a little bit more of a lift, but, but not impossible. And then one other type of deal that I think is, you know, everyone is seeing a little bit more of uh, in the past years are transactions that involve joint ventures or some kind of partial ownership of a target by another entity. Can you talk about the work that you do in that area and what you need to get a sense of the antitrust implications? So joint ventures, I, I, I agree, they're seeming uh, to me to become increasingly common. I think it, it starts with the type of analyses that we've already talked about. So that the traditional analyses that you might undertake uh, if you were acquiring a competitor, but you need to layer on top of that an understanding of how the business is going to be operated, how the joint venture will be operated post-transaction. So uh, who's making the day-to-day business decisions, um, what the financial ownership is to sort of understand how the, the income from the operations will, will flow. And I think also sometimes partners in the joint venture continue to compete outside the joint venture. Um, so you could have uh, two hospital systems combining in a joint venture to operate an ambulatory surgery center, for example, but those hospital systems continue to offer outpatient surgery at their hospitals uh, outside of the joint venture. So I think you need to sort of understand those factors as considerations. And that's, you know, that's, that's a, a fact-specific uh, inquiry. It's, it's not a matter of economics. It's, it's a matter of working with the business people uh, and the antitrust attorneys to understand uh, what's actually happening with the joint venture. And then there, there are standard economic models, I think, that you can use to adjust some of the the measures of market shares or concentration to account for the joint ownership. But it, you know, how you adjust that, I think, really depends on those two core issues. And, and that is uh, who has control of the day-to-day business issues into the joint venture, and then how the financial incentives, how the profits or, or losses, as it may be, from the joint venture flow to the parties. And I will say that it really is a different kind of analysis when I've been involved in Thinking about deals like this, they oftentimes require you to look at the governance documents, at uh, you know draft agreements that the parties are hammering out. It is a very, very different kind of, but very interesting analysis. And, and again, something people should keep in mind that because the agencies, I think, and the state AG's offices are still trying to determine how to think about these types of transactions, it, it may be an area where you can, can really have an advantage if you have a, an economist on board early to be able to articulate some of these less obvious competitive effects or you know, how the antitrust principles are, should be deployed in analyzing the deal. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think a traditional view of joint ventures has been that they are less likely to give rise to competitive concerns because you're not eliminating a competitor from the marketplace. So when one hospital acquires another, you're eliminating the acquired hospital as an independent, you know, the hospital still exists, patients can still uh, receive care there, but it's not an independent entity managing or negotiating with managed care companies or competing to attract physicians or patients. Um, So joint ventures, you know, don't, they don't eliminate competitors uh, sometimes, but they can create, I I think even to economists, somewhat counterintuitive incentives to raise prices Sometimes in some circumstances, the FTC 
or the DOJ might think they're uh, worse uh, from an anti-competitive point of view than a, a straight out acquisition. And I, I think that that's a useful perspective to have because as you say, the devil really is in the details and certainly these transactions can be structured in a way that preserves competition too. But just understanding the lens that's gonna be used to analyze them is, is super helpful. I think the economists and the attorneys, joint ventures depend so much on the, the financial interests and the control that I think you could work with your antitrust counsel to structure the joint venture in such a way that the financial interests and the control mitigate any concerns the agencies might have. So rather than being set in stone, I think you can work with your economists and, and your attorneys to think about how to structure corporate governance or the financial incentives uh, to perhaps uh, alleviate any concerns the agencies might have. You know, in my experience, our healthcare clients have a very clear sense of why uh, they're doing a deal, how it's going to improve care, how it's going to expand access to care. Uh, how it's going to make uh, care delivery more efficient from a cost perspective, you know, why it's going to be good for payers, et cetera. But it's always helpful to have another uh, perspective, I think, um, to make sure that those why type uh, arguments are, are really made as robustly as possible when you're talking to regulators. I just want to know what you like to hear uh, and who you like to hear from when you are uh, trying to understand the why of a deal, thinking about ways that understanding that why can uh, supplement your understanding of the deal uh, beyond just looking at the data. One of the really fun things about, for me at least, about being a consulting health economist is having the opportunities to speak with these smart, really experienced healthcare leaders about the markets that they compete in and what forces are driving them to think about various different kinds of deals and what issues more generally are, are keeping them up at night. And you know, I think our job as economists then is to take these insights um, and translate them into the economic paradigms that DOJ and FTC economists and lawyers are accustomed to you know, looking at the world in, uh, often I should say with little boots on the ground perspective on their part. Um, they tend to be more versed in a lot of academic economic research that focuses narrowly on things like you know, price per unit of service, um, as opposed to the bigger picture that the business people are living and breathing every day in terms of you know, what determines how they can maximize the quality of healthcare they produce and at, at minimum costs. So I think it really is very helpful to sit down, at least virtually, with, with the business folks and really make them articulate the rationale for the deal. And I think the kinds of people that you'd want in the room for this are certainly the chief business folks who have been you know, involved in designing the deal and thinking about it, but perhaps also you know, people who are in charge of quality assurance at the health system, you know, your chief medical officer maybe. And since the FTC and the DOJ are going to be concerned about uh, an impact on competition for managed care contracts, this is not something we've maybe talked about directly, but the, the focus often of the agencies is going to be specifically on how does a deal, a provider deal, change the bargaining dynamic between the providers on the one hand and payers on the other hand. 
it's really helpful to talk to the folks at the healthcare system who are in charge of managed care uh, contracting and negotiations, because they're going to have a really good sense of um, what the dynamics are uh, in that negotiation and to what extent, if any, the transaction that they're contemplating might change it. I think in talking to the business people, it's helpful in addition to asking them about why they're doing the deal and getting them to explain that is to get an, a sense from them of what they believe the transaction that they're thinking about, whether it's a you know all-in merger, whether it's a you know acquisition of a physician practice, or whether it's a looser joint venture, um, what they think they're going to be able to accomplish uh, through that uh, transaction that they can't do on their own, they can't do unilaterally, or they can't do through a, you know, a much looser affiliation. So how is the transaction going to foster better delivery of healthcare services? Because one of the things the agencies are going to be interested in is like, okay, fine, we understand that this deal might be a good thing and do good things, but can't you just do it on your own? That's a, you know, a standard question that they're going to ask. So I think getting business people to articulate why they can't do something on their own. And often it's, you know, you have to align incentives and it's really hard to align incentives when you've just got a, you know, a handshake agreement on something. Um, but, you know, putting some meat on that, I think is really helpful. And then I think in the context of our ever-changing healthcare marketplace, it's helpful to have the business person's perspective on what's going on in their particular marketplace that is causing them at this point in time to think that they need to, you know, pursue a particular uh, kinds of transaction. Um, and then finally, I think it's good to the extent that they have experience with previous transactions and have actually been able to achieve quality enhancements, cost reductions, you know, better ability to take on risk and manage care negotiations. If they can, you know, as concretely as possible, articulate how previous transactions led to, to benefits, I think that those can be really helpful arguments to then frame for the government agencies when, when we go in to, to talk to them and explain, you know, why we're pushing a deal. And also, I think talking to the business people can sometimes give us ideas, us as economists, ideas about what kinds of additional analyses uh, might be useful to, to demonstrate the benefits of a transaction. I think that you've made two really important points, Monica. One of them is that I think it is uh, a really healthy part of the deal process to have some skepticism introduced into the discussions so that the business teams understand the perspective of the enforcers. I think that there's uh, sometimes a sense that our, our healthcare clients have. They are working so hard every day to take care of patients, to drive down costs, to make sure that they are maximizing quality that they, they can't imagine sitting in a room with someone who would essentially question their decision to move forward with the transaction. And I think to introduce this, you know, the types of questions that the team might not be expecting and to help them think about what the justifications are for going forward with the transaction is incredibly important. And then the second point that you made that I think I would just want to underscore is that this notion that once economists and counsel understand the deal, that they can uh, think about additional work that can reinforce the case for the deal is also really important. 
they can decide that these additional suggestions seem like they have a lot of value or, you know, put them in the back pocket for now, et cetera. But just to have someone thinking strategically about how additional analyses, et cetera, might bolster the case, I think is another way that economists really, really add value at this sort of early stage of the deal exploration. No, I think that's a good point, Holden, and it gets us, you know, I think to the extent that we then do, you know, go talk to a, an antitrust agency and try to explain a deal and they come back with questions, having that background from the initial conversations we've had with the business people, you know, I think maybe allows us more efficiently and effectively to A, communicate, you know, answers to the questions, but also to say, you know, let's go analyze X, Y, or Z, this particular question, to, and then come back to you, the agency, with, with a fuller answer. I know that our clients really prioritize the timing of a deal and moving something forward on a timeline. And I think that that's another advantage, frankly, to getting economists on board early, because to the extent that you, you know, sometimes even in a deal that's not reportable under Hart Scott Rodino, you may get a letter from the FTC asking for information about the deal, uh, or you may decide to proactively go in and talk to an enforcer uh, early on. And to be able to do that without disrupting the deal timeline too much is, I think, a big advantage as well. So to have had a team like yours on board since the beginning, ready to roll, to go in to talk to a state AG, to go in to present to the FTC without having to put the brakes on the deal in order to do that work, I think is a big advantage. I want to talk about the moment where you have found yourself sitting across a table or on a Zoom call with agencies that review healthcare provider transactions, the Federal Trade Commission, the DOJ, or, or state AG. At a high level, I'm just wondering if you can uh, sort of summarize the ways that you feel you've been able to bring value to those enforcer interactions and kind of give us a sense of, of the questions that the enforcers typically are posing in those meetings. I think one of the ways, Holden, is, is something that, that you and Monica have already touched on. Economists can effectively uh, speed up uh, the, the deal closing uh, or the, the merger review process by, by doing some of the homework uh, for the agencies. So, you know, working collaboratively uh, with the healthcare providers, pointing the agencies to, to data sources, uh, information about competitors' entry or, or expanding, um, sometimes even, even mundane things like uh, getting the agency's access to those inpatient discharge databases. Quite often, big health systems will have those on hand. It might take the FTC, if they don't already have those data, a couple of weeks to get those data from whatever state agency. So you can speed sort of things up in a purely transactional uh, way, I think, and that can help. I think also, you know, some of doing some of that legwork initially for the FTC or, or the state AG in that sort of initial meeting right after uh, an HSR filing, for example, can help really narrow the scope of investigation. So it'll focus uh, the FTC or AG or Department of Justice on the core competitive issues uh, so they don't get distracted by peripheral things. If it's a hospital merger, uh, maybe they will focus on competition for inpatient general acute services and not get distracted by whether or not there's an issue in uh, outpatient surgery or in inpatient rehab services. I think another way that economists can help, uh, I think, is, is working collaboratively 
with the agency economists to help uh, develop and refine economic models. So I think, you know, usually our relationships with, with the FTC economists, say, are, are pretty cordial and friendly. Um, and there is a sort of a peer review process in some sense that goes on uh, where we can sort of talk back and forth about the right way to approach a problem, um, what, what data might inform certain aspects of a model. We can identify areas in which, uh, the, you know, their approach might be refined or their assumptions uh, might, might be incorrect. So I think that the sort of collaborative uh, working together with, with the agencies uh, can be very helpful. I think also, you know, sometimes, uh, as you know, in, in transactions, the agencies will hear from either competitors or other industry participants about why a deal uh, might uh, pose competitive concerns. So for instance, in a hospital transaction, it might be that the FTC hears from managed care organizations in the area that they have concerns that the uh, transaction might increase the bargaining leverage of the hospitals. We can help address proactively in some situations why those concerns might be unfounded. And, and I guess maybe the last thing to say is uh, building on something Monica said, you know, I think crucial is uh, helping articulate and explain and, and bring evidence to support the pro-competitive benefits of a transaction. So, uh, you know, how is the transaction going to reduce costs? How much will that cost reduction be? Uh, how will quality of care be improved by the transaction? Uh, will the transaction allow uh, the parties to expand their service offerings? Um, you know, all those the, the good things that I think motivate uh, these transactions in general. It's not uncommon for an attorney general or Federal Trade Commission, et cetera, to say, you know, could you give us this information uh, so that we can look at it ourselves to give ourselves some comfort that we understand what's going on here. And that's a process where just having the technical skill that an economic consultant um, has can really move the ball forward because that can all, often be very challenging even to clients who have fantastic, super sophisticated data outfits. On the subject of of who these enforcers are that you're talking to. I'm just wondering what your perspective is on state AGs in this in this area over the last couple of years. Are, have you seen an increase in the in the interest of, of state AG offices in these transactions? I think they've generally been active for quite a while, and there is a fair amount of variation across states. I mean, there are some AGs who I think work very closely with the federal agencies um, and are very active with the federal agencies there are a few who you know want to take the lead and prefer that the feds stay in washington but i think generally the the healthcare markets tend to be viewed as local markets so i think you know the ags feel that they have a very important role to play uh, in antitrust enforcement when it comes to healthcare and i think often they are coordinating within the state with other state agencies that are focused on healthcare. A lot of, you know, a lot of states now have, you know, offices that review cost structures or, you know, what's going on with Medicaid programs or things like that. And the, the AG is perhaps, you know, better equipped to coordinate with some of those other state-based interests, but they're quite active. I think what one of the other ways in, in, in which state AGs might be getting more involved is that Hospital merger transactions are usually so large uh, that the parties have to make an HSR filing so that the FTC and, and DOJ are notified 
uh, about the transaction. I, I think sometimes in my experience, uh, physician transactions uh, don't pass that, that HSR filing threshold. So the, the FTC might not be notified about them automatically, but attorneys general uh, tend to sort of have a, a little closer eye on what's happening in their local community. Um, so I've seen state attorneys general, uh, I think, get involved in uh, more closely scrutinizing physician transactions uh, that, than I think I have in the past. And, and often, uh, in my experience, that's, that's been an investigation that's been independent of uh, an FTC uh, investigation of that physician transaction. So I think that's a, a nice segue to my last question, which is sort of trends on the horizon. So Sean, you've said that the, you know, those physician transactions that fall below the HSR threshold can uh, sometimes not get investigated by the FTC, but we very recently heard the FTC say that they are keeping an eye on um, transactions that are in their mind leading to too much concentration in that physician space uh, when they are non-reportable. So I, I do think that the agencies are sending a signal that they're going to be taking a closer look at those. But I'm wondering, um, as we close out our conversation here, you know, what you know, when we picture the interactions that we will have with enforcers in the next few years, you know, what are the economic questions that they're going to be focused on, do you think? Is there, you know, will a change in administration uh, have any effect? Um, will COVID or a post-COVID world um, change how people are looking at things? I'm just, I'm curious to know what your predictions about trends uh, will be with respect to how the enforcers are going to look at healthcare economics in these deals. Given that the antitrust agencies, both at the federal and state level, have, as we've been already pointing out, been pretty consistently active investigating healthcare transactions in you know at least the last decade and probably longer than that, two decades really, uh, I don't really expect that there's going to be that much change in the level of enforcement um, at either the federal or state level. That being said, I think the combination of a typically greater focus by Democrats on social issues um, and a variety of emerging forces that are generally affecting the healthcare landscape. I think those forces will hopefully spur the antitrust authorities to think more broadly about the typical antitrust questions such as market definition um, and the importance of scale and efficiencies as they you know, continue to evaluate transactions. And there are sort of three forces that I you know, have in mind. One you, you mentioned already, um, Holden, and we've talked a, bit, a little bit about it, and that's COVID, which unfortunately is you know, still in our midst. Um, the second, I think, is an increasing focus on social determinants of health. Um, and the third is the growth of you know, the, and real expansion of new kinds of care delivery models that are emerging. So let me, you know, very briefly just sort of give you a couple thoughts on, on each of them. On COVID, we've talked about financial implications and how that's going to lead to consolidation. I think another feature of COVID is that it led to a very rapid expansion and acceptance of telehealth. Um, and I don't think that's going to, that genie's going to go back in the bottle. I think that's there for good. So that, at least with respect to some services, is, you know, should maybe think, help us think about or help us change how we think about product and geographic market definition. And then finally, I think COVID has raised awareness of real racial and social inequities in healthcare. And that leads to my second point, which was, you know, sort of an already ongoing, but probably expanding focus, particularly in a democratic administration 
on social determinants of health and the fact, you know, the inequities in access to healthcare. And I think this is an area where health systems clearly can't do it all on their own. They can't be solving food insecurity problems or housing, lack of housing, affordable housing, or lack of job training. But they're well positioned, I think, to serve as coordinators for this kind of service for their underserved patient population. And, you know, as are managed Medicaid payers, and we haven't talked much about the payer landscape, but I think it's true there. But I think that where this becomes relevant to antitrust questions is that you need to have scale to be able to perform that much more encompassing role as opposed to just, you know, providing another hospital bed for another orthopedic surgery patient or heart attack or whatever. And so I think there's going to be a real question of, for the antitrust authorities about how do you acknowledge greater needs for scale while still pursuing objectives to maintain competition. And I think the, you know, thinking about the trade-offs between allowing organizations to combine and grow in such a way that they can um, provide a much broader portfolio of services or at least coordinate it versus, you know, making sure you've got enough competitors in a, in a marketplace. Um, and that's, you know, it's a tough question. I think, you know, they're already thinking about that because there are all sorts of things that have been pushing scale for a while, but I think this, you know, is just another layer of that. Um, and then finally, I think there are a bunch of market-based forces that are leading to really new kinds of providers of healthcare services. We've had, you know, seen a, a bunch of unique combinations of different, you know, payers and other kinds of entities that are getting into the provider space. Um, and then you've got entities that didn't even used to be in healthcare that are more like tech firms that are now getting into healthcare because of their grasp of huge information databases that then relate into population health and things like that. So you're seeing different partnerships. Um, and I think you're even seeing just new competitors and that's going to affect how traditional competitors are forced to think about their own marketplace and how they compete and what kinds of combinations they make. And the antitrust authorities are going to have to, you know, reach some understanding and some way of thinking about um, these new forces. So I think there's going to be a lot going on in the next several years, which will keep it fun for all of us. I just wanted to add that, Monica. I, uh, I think this doesn't have to do anything with a change in administration. But we've touched a little bit upon uh, vertical transactions in healthcare, which I think are becoming increasingly common. Um, and whereas I, I think there's a lot of there's been a lot of litigation and academic research and writings about when horizontal mergers might lead to concerns, um, there's been less guidance from the the agencies, and and certainly less uh, fewer uh, decisions about vertical transactions in healthcare and when they might give rise to concerns. Um, so I think there's some uncertainty about exactly what types of vertical transactions in healthcare um, might uh, attract the attention of the agencies and, you know, what types of market structures are um, consistent with, uh, with the potential for increased prices. There will be more activity there. And I think there's also a, a great deal of uncertainty uh, in, in how those matters are going to be approached. 
I have to say, I now wish we had another three hours to talk about everything that you have just mentioned, because it is incredibly exciting to think about the opportunity to make new arguments and explore new issues in a, a landscape that's been changed by forces like telehealth and COVID and the exposure of these social issues and so forth. I mean, it, it also, I think, increases the incentive for our clients to have a team of people who can think creatively about making their case. Um, you know, this is not a, an era, I think, where, you know, as, as, as you've described, where we're going to be uh, mounting the same arguments that we have for the last decade. I think there's going to be a lot of room for innovative, creative advocacy here with respect to the realities that they're confronting right now and are going to be confronting for, for some time to come. Super exciting. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have another three hours, but I cannot thank you enough, Sean and Monica, for joining me today. I think this is going to be a really useful conversation for our clients to listen in on as they think about the transactions that they may be pursuing. And I think that this should help our clients really put themselves in the best position for thinking about and pursuing those transactions in the next year and beyond. So thank you very, very much for your perspective and your expertise today. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Holden. Thanks for having us. Judy, back to you. Thank you, Holden. And thank you to Dr. Nother and Dr. May for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, please don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. We appreciate you joining us. Okay.